Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We've been learning about the controversy over Christ's origins in the last couple of episodes. This battle raged between groups of Christians who agreed that Jesus pre-existed for 60 years. But today, we're taking a break from that and looking instead at the early Christians who held to a dynamic Monarchian Christology. Specifically, we'll be considering two influential bishops, Paul of Samosata and Photinus of Sirmium. Although sometimes mislabeled as adoptionists, these two believed in the virgin birth but did not think Christ existed before then. Although what we know about these two survives in the writings of their enemies, we can reconstruct sketches of their beliefs and influence. Here now is episode 496, Early Church History Part 14, Paul of Samosata and Photinus of Sirmium. Over the last couple of sessions, we've looked at the shameful battle between egalitarians and subordinationists. Both parties believed Jesus pre-existed, but couldn't agree on whether he was eternal and equal with the Father or not. However, at the same time, another stream of Christians fought for another view, a theology they thought was more biblical and less troubled by philosophical conundrums. The dynamic Monarchians. And these guys are both dynamic Monarchians. So in this session, I thought we'd take a look at two of these key dynamic Monarchians, Paul of Samosata in the 3rd century. So I'm going back a century before Constantine for Paul. And then Photinus of Sirmium of the 4th century. So, first up, Paul of Samosata lived from roughly 200 to the year 275. In the year 260, he was ordained bishop of Antioch. And let me tell you something, that is no small place to be a bishop. Here's a map of the Pentarchy. The Pentarchy is the five biggest Christian churches in the Mediterranean world. So we have Rome, we have Constantinople, we have Antioch, and we have Jerusalem and Alexandria. Those are the five big ones. And the thing about the time of Paul is that since he's a bishop in the year 260, there's no Constantinople yet. It doesn't even exist yet. It's still called Byzantium, and Constantine hasn't even drawn out the boundary with a spear to decide how big and great it's going to be. None of that's ever happened yet. So there's really not even five. There's really four main churches. And so Paul of Samosata, as a bishop of Antioch, is a bishop of one of the four biggest, most important churches. Antioch was where Barnabas went and got Paul to be with him. Antioch is where the Jews and the Gentiles who both follow Jesus, learn how to do table fellowship, how to have community with diversity. That's all in Antioch. And it was from Antioch that Paul went out on his missionary journeys. Well, let me before I get to this 264 Synod of Antioch, let me just say a couple words about Paul of Samosata. Fascinating guy. He grew up poor, but by the time he was a bishop, he was a man of great wealth. We don't really know why or how, uh, but we do know that by the time he was a bishop, the way he carried himself, he would go through the marketplaces reading or dictating letters as he went with a public bodyguard surrounding him. And when he preached in church, it was amazing. According to Eusebius, Paul of Samosata put on a show in church assemblies to dazzle. He said he slaps his thigh and stamps on the dais and people applaud, wave, handkerchiefs, shout, and jump up. Sounds like a typical charismatic preacher. Dancing around, getting the people worked up. Robert Lynn Sample says, Paul's particular brand of Christianity had an ecstatic or spontaneous character with a stress on spiritual power. 
boy, if that was said about me, I would be pretty happy about that. <laughs> like stress on spiritual power, that's pretty good. Paul was powerful. He was a powerful preacher and his people loved him. We have two other little bits of information about his life. One is that even by his enemies, they admitted that Paul does nothing licentious. So there's no sexual scandal, no funny business with the, with the money or anything. No, nothing, nothing licentious. And the other thing we know about him is that the hymns to Christ, he banned as recent compositions. So presumably there were songs that people were singing to Christ that went against what Paul understood to be the correct biblical doctrine. And so he said, we're not singing that song in our church. Many a Unitarian pastor has been in that situation, a worship team, so I figured I'd mention it. In 264, at the Synod of Antioch, there was a group of bishops that got together and they interrogated Paul about his beliefs, uh, but nothing really came of it. In the year 268, there was another synod, and Paul was challenged by Malchian, the head of the school of Greek rhetoric in Antioch. Just in case you don't know, rhetoric is the art of persuasive speech. So in other words, this Malchion is a professional debater. He's somebody that probably could win on any subject on either side, right? And so he's the guy that they select to go against Paul of Samosata. And he had this debate taken down by shorthand, and it survived for some, some time, but it doesn't survive to our day. Eusebius mentions having it 80 years later. It was still around. Sadly, uh, Paul of Samosata lost uh, in the eyes of the group assembled, and so they condemned him. And they had a council that sent a letter to the bishop of Rome, a man named Dionysus, and the bishop of Alexandria, a man named Maximus. But Paul decided not to leave his church. He said, I hear what you're saying. You disagree with my views, but I'm just going to keep pastoring this church. And they couldn't do anything about it because, like I said, Paul was powerful and the people loved him. So the bishops then appealed to Emperor Aurelian to settle the matter. Emperor Aurelian is a non-Christian. Again, we're before Constantine here. This is, this is uh, 268. So Aurelian is a pagan emperor, and this was the first time Christians asked a pagan emperor to meddle in their affairs. Aurelian said, instead of like really investigating, he said, well, whatever the Italian bishops say, is what I'll do. Because at this time, the capital was in Rome. Rome is surrounded by Italy, right? So like whatever my own hometown bishops say is what we'll do with this. They decided to condemn Paul. It still would take until the year 272 when Emperor Aurelian took back Syria. The land in which Antioch sits is the land called Syria. And Syria had fallen under the control of Queen Zenobia of Palmyra. And so it wasn't under Roman control. So only after Aurelian retook the land was he able to kick Paul out of being the bishop. And then later on, Aurelian decided to persecute Christianity, but died before he could carry it out. So I don't think we want to put much stock in him. After Paul leaves in, in the year 272, we don't hear anything more about him. But we do know that his name becomes a standard way of referring to Unitarians in the period. Oftentimes, historians today will call Paul of Samosata an adoptionist, and they'll call Photinus of Sermium an adoptionist. They were not adoptionists. They did not believe that God adopted Jesus as his son at his baptism. They believed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was Messiah, that he was a man, and we'll see in just a minute, uh, but they, I don't think he was an adoptionist. Anyhow, his name is used to refer to people who are Unitarians later on. So, like, they will call him Paulinians, or Paulians, or Paulianists, or Samosatines, because he's Paul of Samosata. So, Samosatine sounds like a saltine cracker, but uh, Samosatine is a, a follower of Paul. Eusebius says about Paul's theology that. Paul will not confess that the Son of God descended from heaven. 
he says that Jesus Christ is from below. He had a strong influence on the bishops of his town, and he was associated, according to Eusebius, with a man named Artemon. Artemon of Rome flourished around the year 230. That's kind of a, a history notation. We use this little FL here to indicate flourished. That means that's like his prime period of influence or literary output or whatever. So Artemon flourished around 230 in Rome. He was a prominent Christian teacher. Eusebius quotes a book that he doesn't give us the title of or who wrote it. It's an anonymous book of somebody that was talking about Artemon and refuting Artemon. So from that, we can glean some little information about Artemon because Paul Samosata was associated with him, at least in the eyes of some of these people. And this is what it says. They claim that all their predecessors, this is Artemon's group, around the year 230-ish, they claim that all their predecessors and the apostles themselves taught what they do, and that the true teaching was preserved until the time of Victor, the 13th bishop of Rome after Peter, but that the truth has been perverted from the time of his successor, Zephyrinus. So that is a really interesting claim. <laughs> Artemon is saying, look, this is what Jesus and the apostles preached. This is what we've always believed up until about the time of Zephyrinus. And then it started to get weird <laughs> as far as the theology of Christ. That same book goes on to call a certain Theodotus, the father of this idea, saying that Christ was merely human. It also mentions Asclepiodotus, another Theodotus, the banker, and Bishop Natalius. Later on, that same source talks about how these Christians defended themselves. And it says, If anyone challenges them with a passage from Scripture, they examine it to see if it can be turned into a conjunctive or disjunctive syllogism. Some of them study the geometry of Euclid and revere Aristotle and Theophrastus, and some Galen. Many manuscripts are available because their disciples zealously made copies of their corrected, though really corrupted, texts. The copies are in their own handwriting. So from this, we can gather about Artemon and his entourage and his predecessor, Theodotus, that they were highly educated people, that they knew logic inside and out, that it was not easy to defeat them in argument, and that they had very great concern for what we call today textual criticism, comparing manuscripts to get the most correct version together. As for Artemon's beliefs, we have a quote from Theodoret in the 5th century, and this is what he says about Artemon. He says, Now a certain Artemon, whom some call Artemis, believed things about the God of the universe almost like we do. He said that he was the maker of the universe. However, he said that the Lord Jesus Christ was a mere man, born of a virgin. See, now look, you're not an adoptionist if you're born of a virgin. So this is a combination of two things, a mere man and born of a virgin. That's interesting. But superior in virtue to the prophets. He said that the apostles had preached these things, misinterpreting the sense of the divine scriptures, and that those who follow after them teach that Christ was not God. So that's a little bit about Artemon. He believed that Christ was a man and not God, that he did not pre-exist, but he was born of a virgin. And this is very similar to Theodotus, about whom we have other quotations, but we can't get too distracted with that. We need to get back to Paul. Let's get back to Paul of Samosata. 200 to 275. Paul's influence, according to Eusebius, Paul is, is lumped in with Artemon and the Ebionites. He's like, oh, he's like Artemon, he's like the Ebionites. It's not clear to me that Artemon, way over there in Rome, way out in the west, has any kind of contact with Paul of Samosata. Samosata is a very eastern place from like a Roman Empire perspective. It's north of Syria, if that helps. Um, and then he ends up in Antioch, which is in Syria. So, like, it's not unthinkable that he couldn't have had some connection with Artemon in Rome, but we, we don't know. <laughs> they might have had a connection. They might not have had a connection. It's, I think it's very likely that Paul had run-ins with Jewish Christians, though, because Antioch would have Jewish Christians. That would be a place where they would be around. Now, Jewish Christians, as you recall, 
we had the branch, the Nazarenes and the Ebionites, and they both denied the preexistence of Christ, and they both believed that Jesus to be the Messiah. But some of them believed in the virgin birth, and some didn't, if you remember. All right, so we don't know for sure what his influences were, but those are some possibilities, Artemis and the Jewish Christians. Epiphanius says Paul used to quote Deuteronomy 6.4. And he also goes on to say, These sectarians have imported Judaism. They do not practice circumcision or keep the Sabbath, but their doctrines are in all other respects Jewish. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the Texas Classicus for the Jewish definition of God. It is the great central commandment, according to Jesus Christ himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. Now look, just because somebody quotes Deuteronomy 6.4 doesn't make them Jewish, okay? And it doesn't mean that they had influence from Jewish Christians. But it is another data point. There's a lot of possible insinuations here that Paul of Samosata had contact with Jewish Christians. Uh, he certainly gets accused of it. Or he could just have agreed with them about who the Messiah was to be. Paul's view on the Logos. Now, as you recall, in the third century, the Logos was really an idea that was gaining dominance in Christianity. And this is what Paul says about the Logos. According to Epiphanius, he says, For they suppose that the word is like that in the heart and wisdom, like that prudence in the human soul, which each human being has acquired from God. For this reason, they say that God together with the word is one person, as a human being and his word are one. Did you see that? We have a non-philosophically charged definition of the Logos. Paul's definition of the Logos is it's just like your word. God's word is like your word. This is internal to your being or your person. And then you externalize it when you speak it out. And when God speaks out his word, he creates the universe or the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the prophet, or whatever. You know, like it's not a being, it's God expressing. So that's how Paul is talking about it. Very simple, very literal, very non-philosophical. Another source named Marius Mercator says... He teaches that the word which abides in the substance of God is consubstantial with God, which the Greeks call homoousios. He asserts that the one is and ought to be called truly son who was born of Mary. And there's a lot here. There's a lot here. So this word here for word, that's the Greek word for logos. So he says that the Logos, or the Word, abides in the usia, the substance of God. This guy's writing in Latin, so it would be substantia. But it's the same concept as usia. And then this Latin writer actually writes in a Greek word, and it's our big fancy Greek word that we saw all last time. So Paul is saying that the Word is of the same substance as the Father. Just like your Word is of the same essence of being as you. Makes sense, right? So the word homoousios was actually already in all kinds of trouble because of Paul's Samosata, but he doesn't think that the word is the son. He thinks that the son was born of Mary. Do you see how that works? So you have God's word, which exists from however long God has existed, and then that is not the same as the son. The son is only from Mary. Here's another statement about Paul. This is actually from the Acta, uh, the Acts of one of the um, councils. Paul of Samosatis, this is like a quote of Paul. He says, a man is anointed, a logos is not anointed. <laughs> Can you just imagine like he's having this debate with Malachian? He's like, a man is anointed, a logos is not anointed. A word is, you, you can't anoint a word, right? The Nazarene is anointed, our Lord. For the Logos was greater than Christ. So this is really interesting, huh? Distinguishing between the Logos and Christ. The Logos was greater than Christ. For Christ became great through wisdom. A Logos, on the one hand, is from above. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is a man from below. Mary did not bear the Logos, for she was not before the ages. Mary received the Logos, and Mary is not older than the Logos. I can almost hear him say, come on, guys. But she bore a man equal with us. So Christ is actually a man equal with us, but 
mightier with respect to all things, since grace was upon him from the Holy Spirit and from the promises and the Scriptures. So Christ is a man, just like other people. He's equal to us in that regard. But he's got these two huge advantages. One, he's got a grace upon him from the Holy Spirit, and he's got this destiny promised in the Scriptures. So that's the only ways in which Paul sees Christ as superior. One more quote about Paul. Theodorus said, Paul said, The house of God's logos was in him just as in each of the prophets. Thereupon he said that two natures holding themselves separate and unshared with reference to themselves are together in Christ, the one being Christ himself and the other being the logos of God dwelling in him. This explains the relationship of Christ to the Word. Christ is not the Word. Christ is indwelt by the Word of God, or the Logos of God, or the Spirit of God. So Paul's Christ did not pre-exist, but was predestined. And we get this from Pseudo-Epiphanius. He says, This one maintains strongly that Christ was almost non-existent, having thought he was the uttered Word, and that he was from Mary, and up to that time existed prophetically. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus, or Christ, whichever way you want to say it, existed prophetically. He didn't exist in actuality, but in prophecy, since he possessed, on the one hand, the thing being written about him in the Holy Scriptures, but on the other hand, he was not existing, but was from Mary and through the incarnate coming. So that's a little bit about what we have about Paul. We have other quotations than what I share with you, but I didn't want to overwhelm you and do too many. Uh, Paul's legacy is, is kind of interesting. After the non-Christian emperor removed him, uh, we don't know much about him, but we do know that Constantine, when he wrote his edict against the heretics, he specifically mentioned Paulinus, followers of Paul of Samosata, as people that still couldn't have church in his tolerant empire. Tolerant to everyone except for people like this, okay? And he mentioned a couple of others, too. So that was about 40 years later. Constantine feels like it's, it's, it's worthwhile mentioning this group of people that agree with Paul of Samosata, even though he had been dead for some time. And then Canon 19 in the Council of Nicaea, the 325 Council of Nicaea, Canon 19 says, if Paulinus want to join the churches, they can, but they have to be rebaptized. So you wouldn't make that rule if you didn't have actual people to deal with that were from this, this background. About a century later, another man would rise through the ranks in Sirmium, modern-day Serbia. He would shine a bright light on the humanity of Christ. and His name was Photinus of Sirmium, whose name means shining or bright. Looks like photon, right? Photinus was originally from and Kyra in Galatia. You ever heard of Galatia? I think there's like a letter to the Galatians in our Bible somewhere, right? So once again, he's from an area where there's lots of Jewish people, there's lots of Gentile people, there were churches founded by the Apostle Paul, so there's a lot of possibility for you know, hearing ideas from Jewish Christians. Again, we don't know for sure where Photinus got his ideas, but we do know that it's certainly that region. His life is interesting. We don't know when he was born. He died in the year 376. If he lived to be 76 years old, I guess he was born around 300. If he lived to be 51 years old, he was born in 325. Either which way, however many years he lived, we know he lived his whole entire life in the midst of controversy. Throughout the theological civil war between the people that believe in preexistence Oh, is he begotten? Is he eternal? Uh, is he of the same substance? Is he of a similar substance? Is he of a different? That's what he lived through. All the councils, a lot of them happened in the very city where he was the bishop, Sirmium. A whole bunch happened in Sirmium. So he only knew controversy his whole life. Still, both sides of the Christian civil war, if we could call it that, were raging on throughout his whole life, and yet. Here he is. Here's this one guy that's just totally unlike the others. He was an eloquent speaker and very persuasive. 
He wasn't afraid of debate. He steadfastly held his position. He was a man of his time. Everyone was getting kicked out of everything all the time. I mean, even Athanasius got exiled over and over and over again. Getting a council of bishops against you to condemn you is almost like a rite of passage at this point in history. Whatever side you're on, everyone's getting condemned a little bit. He became the bishop of Sirmium in the year 343. In the year 344, so that didn't take too long, in Antioch there was a council that condemned him, and they had a creed they drew up called the Macro-Stitch Creed. And uh, we actually have it, so I'm going to cite it to you in a, in a couple minutes here. In 345, there was a council at Milan in Italy that condemned him. And then in 347, a council at Rome condemned him. So he's getting a lot of people condemning him, huh? So after all these councils, Photinus is like, you know what? I'm just going to appeal to the emperor. I'm going to directly ask the emperor for a debate. And so that's what he does. He appeals to the emperor Constantius to send auditors so he could have a moderated public debate with stenographers to take it all down. And wouldn't you believe it? The emperor says, yes, let's do it. Let's have a debate. And he sends people down, and Photinus debates a guy named Basil of Ancyra, not to be confused with the Cappadocian Basil, different Basil. Photinus said, and this is a direct quote from Epiphanius, that he was prepared to present a hundred proof texts for his position. That's just like classic debate trash talk right there. It's like, I got a hundred proof texts. What do you got, seven? Come on, let's do this thing. Right? <laughs> that's just like, that's, that's like, um, you know, you have these boxers and these MMA fighters, right? They trash talk before the fight, right? So then there's a big turnout. Oh, boy. So Photinus is like, I got a hundred proof texts. Let's do this thing. Constantius's auditors, though, decided in favor of Basil, and he was actually deposed in the year 351 after the debate. That same year, they had a council at Sirmium denouncing Photinian doctrine, and in 361, Constantius, the emperor, died. So guess what? You're not exiled anymore. So he came back, and the church took him back, and he was the bishop again. Until they rallied, and it took him three years, but eventually they got the new emperor, Valentinian I, to depose him. Photinus was just like kind of living in a period of time where his, his view of Christ was already just so unpopular that so long as majority was going to be a part of the equation of who's right and who's wrong, he was just going to lose no matter what. And there was no, like, just leave me alone and let me do my own thing option. Not in this part of the world at this time. Jerome says that after he was expelled, after Photinus was expelled, he wrote numerous volumes. He wrote a number of other books. Among them, the most significant were Against the Pagans and to Valentinus. And then in the year 376, he died. So he had, it looks like maybe 12 fruitful years of labor after he was deposed the second time where he became an author and wrote some books. Of course, none of them survive today. According to Jerome, Photinus endeavored to revive the Ebionite heresy. So from Jerome's point of view, and Jerome is quick to pull the trigger and call somebody a Judaizer, just just, to, just so you know. But he associates him with Jewish Christianity. Epiphanius says that the word was in the Father, he says, but was not the Son. Fotinus quoted 1 Corinthians 15.47. He says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Think about that for a second. The first man is from heaven, Right? No, the first man is of dust. The second man is from heaven. He says that he is from heaven because a word came forth from the Father and changed into flesh. So says Epiphanius about Photinus. So the idea is that Photinus is saying, all right, well, if Adam is the first man, he's from the earth, the second man is from heaven, but it doesn't mean that he lived in heaven. It means that the word became flesh. That's how he's thinking about the subject. Uh, what does it mean to come from heaven? He claims that Christ does not exist from the beginning, but is from Mary's time. Since the Holy Spirit came upon her, he says, 
and he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is greater than Christ. couple of things here. One, Christ does not exist from the beginning, but it's from Mary's time. That's no preexistence. That's what Photinus believed. But then he also accepts that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's not an adoptionist. He is uh, what we would call today a biblical Unitarian, or scholars typically call these guys dynamic monarchians. Ambrose mentions that Photinus would quote 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And he would quote John 8.40, which is where Jesus says, Why do you wish to kill me, a man who has told you the truth about God? Here's that macro-stitch creed. must have had some big stitches in it for it to be called the macro-stitch. <laughs> this is just an excerpt out of it. It's a very long creed. It says, well, actually, it had just mentioned Paul of Samosata in the previous paragraph. And then it goes into this paragraph talking about Photinus. He was not Christ or Son of God or mediator or image of God before ages, but that he first became Christ and Son of God when he took our flesh from the virgin, not quite 400 years ago. For they will have it that then Christ began his kingdom and that it will have an end after the consummation of all and the judgment. Such are the disciples of Marcellus and Scotinus of Galatian and Cyra, who, like the Jews, deny Christ's existence before ages and his Godhead and unending kingdom upon pretense of supporting the divine monarchy. All right, this is trash talk. The guy's name is not Scotinus, it's Photinus, okay? Why would they call him Scotinus? Photinus means light or bright. Scotinus means darkness. They're being clever. They're trying to be clever. They're like, he's not a man of light, he's a man of darkness, and they're rubbing it in his face. But this is actually a reference to Photinus, just using a slang name for him. And he was a disciple of Marcellus. I don't have time to get into Marcellus with you. He's a really difficult person to study. It seems like he had one view of things at one time, and then he changed his views in another time. And so because of that, it's a little challenging. But we do know that Photinus had been a, a disciple of Marcellus and that over time, their, it seems like their beliefs had diverged, that Marcellus had gone in a different direction. But I wanted to point out that this statement was made about Photinus. Another creed that mentioned him in 351, the Sermium Creed, said, if any man say that the Son existed before Mary... Only according to foreknowledge or predestination, and denies that he was born of the Father before the ages and with God, that all things were made through him, let him be anathema. <laughs> so, what we saw with Paul of Samosata is that he understood that Christ or the Son existed prophetically before he was born. With Photinus, he existed in foreknowledge or in predestination. It's all very similar kind of terminology. Although roundly criticized by Logos subordinationists and Nicenes, Photinus represented an ancient biblical Unitarian view, detectable in antecedents going back to Paul of Samosata and Artemon in the 3rd century and Theodotus and the Jewish Christians in the 2nd century and arguably to the apostles and Christ himself in the 1st century. Although billed as an innovator, seen from this light, Photinus was a conservative, looking to wind back the clock to a more primitive and apostolic Christology, free from philosophical speculations about logos, homoousios, and beginning before all ages. The followers of Photinus were dubbed Photinians. You notice they do this with everyone, right? So Paul of Sam, so Paulians. Photinus, Photinians. Athanasius' followers were Athanasians, right? So it's just kind of a standard thing. D.H. Williams writes, Proponents of Photinian theology continue to be active in the West long after the bishop's condemnation and deposition in 351, as evidenced by the prescriptions of Photinians under emperors Constantius II, Gratian, Theodosius, and Theodosius throughout the later 4th century. These repeated prescriptions suggest 
that the theological emphases represented in Photinianism had a broad appeal that was not easily stamped out. Throughout the next 150 years, Photinianism persisted in small pockets, chiefly in the West, and was called by several names. So these are two guys. You have Paul of Samosata of the 3rd century, and you have Photinus of Sirmium in the 4th century. Both bishops, that's the top level you can get to in their world, to, to the level of bishop, especially bishop of one of the biggest cities around. Sirmium was no small posting either. It wasn't in the Pentarchy, but it was very, very prestigious, especially at that time. And yet, they were deposed and they were basically kicked out of their churches because the majority had already decided that preexistence was the way to go and that really the question wasn't about whether or not Christ preexisted, but how did he begin to preexist? Or did he always preexist? <laughs> All right, let's review. From 260 to 272, Paul of Samosata was the bishop of Antioch, one of the four most important churches in the world. He was a charismatic preacher whose animated congregation participated with applauding, waving handkerchiefs, shouting, and even jumping. Paul prevented singing the newer hymns to Jesus, probably because they differed from his beliefs. Other bishops challenged him in 264 and tried to depose him in 268. Paul did not leave his church. In 272, Emperor Aurelian took back the region for Rome from Queen Zenobia of Palmyra and deposed Paul. Like Artemon, a generation before him, and Theodotus before him, Paul taught that Jesus was the Christ, but that he did not exist before his birth, though he agreed that he existed prophetically. Paul taught that the Logos was of the same substance as the Father. Photinus was bishop of Sirmium in the middle of the 4th century until emperors Constantius and Valentinus I deposed him. Like Paul, he believed that the Logos was in the Father, but was not equivalent to the Son, though the Son is what the Logos became when it became flesh. Photinus placed a heavy emphasis on Scripture and said he had a hundred proof texts for his Christology. After Photinus died, Photinians persisted in the Roman Empire for another 150 years in small pockets. We began this journey with Philo of Alexandria. He was the first one to write extensively about the Logos as an active creator of the universe. Now, he's not even a Christian. He was a Jew. But he was using Greek philosophy and the book of Genesis together, and he's coming up with a, a synthesis of these that passes through Clement of Alexandria, through Origen of Alexandria, and then eventually to Alexander of Alexandria into these successive stages of what we call Logos theology, or what I call Logos subordinationism. Eventually, though, it outgrows that in a sense, if I could put it that way, and it becomes full equality with the Father, so that the Father and the Logos are equal in rank and dignity, although there's still a difference between them in that one is unbegotten and one is begotten. And that, that never goes away. You can't really get rid of that. At least I don't think you can. So as things are developing like this, there are other Christians, like the Jewish Christians, that are just like not on that train that's going towards Nicaea and Constantinople in 381. They're just sort of hanging out in the East and they're doing more basic understanding of Christianity, of Jesus as being the Messiah who was born from the Virgin through the power of the Spirit. But that's about it. Like there's not this prehistory and there's no worrying about how the Logos relates to the monad in the beginning before all ages. It's a phrase they use a lot. And these Christians are still in the same empire as those other Christians. So it's a really fascinating story to tell, and we're going to have to leave it there. We're actually going to come back to Christology again, but we need to take a break from it for a little while first. So what we're going to do next time instead is look at the monastic movement. We're going to look at people that said, enough of this, I'm going to the desert. And I'm going to live by myself 
in an old Roman fort that nobody uses anymore, or I'm going to go off to some mountain and live in a cave. Those are the hermits. And we're going to look at the Cenobite communities, the, the communities of monks, monasteries, where they would gather together and they would have jobs and everything else. We're going to look at all of that next time as we continue through our journey of early church history. Well, that brings this session to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 496, Paul of Samosata and Photinus of Sirmium, and leave your feedback there. On a previous episode about the Constantinian shift, Suzanne wrote in saying, Hey, Sean, love all this. I'm bolstering myself by listening to many, many of your podcasts on church history as I'm taking my Trinitarian church history courses in seminary. Ugh. I'm wondering what you have to say about the run-up to Constantine and the development of the just war theory and Augustine's hand in that. Uh, Then she goes on to quote from Justo Gonzalez, the standard text used by evangelical seminaries that makes the story sound like everyone was evangelical the whole time, or if they weren't, they were trying to be, and they just didn't have adequate language yet. (laughs) Sorry, is is that too negative of a... A criticism. Anyhow, she goes on. I'm not going to read out her quote, but I'll just mention the content of it is about uh, Christians serving in the Roman military uh, around the time of Galerius and an incident occurring in 295 where a number of Christians were condemned to death for refusing to join the army or for trying to leave it. And uh, Justo Gonzalez, from that datum, decides that, quote, there was no general agreement among Christians regarding military service, end quote. Even though, as we saw, uh, just breaking in here with Preston Sprinkle's statement from the book Fight, and you can find plenty of other scholars to say the same thing, that everyone, and this is not an overstatement, literally every Christian who wrote about the subject of military service or violence took a characteristic Jesus, love your enemies approach and argued for non-participation. Probably the closest you get to participation is Origen saying that Christians should pray on the side of justice. Uh, That is, Christians could even pray for military victory, but it would not be appropriate for them to participate in the violence, even if it was a just war, which is really interesting. Suzanne goes on, I can see how with the likes of leaders like Eusebius and Augustine, the stance of Rome being holy and God's kingdom arm of righteousness, justice on earth would get solidified into church policy slash stance. I'd love for you to speak on the decades prior to Constantine that showed the shift away from pacifism nonviolence and why believers started abandoning the clear commands from Jesus and the apostles, which the early church stood by, even to martyrdom. Was it mostly just due to so much persecution in regions that the churches came up with ways to justify participating in wars? Thanks, and I love your article on nonviolence. Everyone should read it. Thanks, Suzanne. There's so much work to be done on the period, and yet a number of capable authors and scholars have done so much on this subject. I can mention just a few names off the top of my head. David Berceau has done excellent work on this. Dean Taylor would be another one coming from an Anabaptist point of view. Of course, the OG, the original advocate for, in particular, a Mennonite perspective on the subject is John Howard Yoder. And you can't do better than John Howard Yoder on it. Adolf Harnack wrote a little book called Militia Christie, which was very good and helpful. But probably the most accessible would be the book I quoted in the lecture on the Constantinian Shift called Fight by Preston Sprinkle, a very up-to-date modern book that has lots of good footnotes for you to follow up with other sources on the subject. Also, Preston Sprinkle just yesterday posted a podcast called The Early Church on Military Service and Killing with Dr. George Kalantzis. And in this episode, he asked Kalantzis all of the hard questions that always come up with this topic, like, did the early Christians just not participate in the military because of idolatry? Was allegiance the issue, allegiance to Caesar versus Jesus? Was violence the main factor, or was it something else? And I highly recommend their conversation. So if you're interested in this subject, whatever side of it you happen to be on, I would recommend Theology in the Raw podcast episode 1077. That's 1077. 
and is called The Early Church on Military Service and Killing. Uh, Dr. George Kalantzis also refers to his book, Caesar and the Lamb, Early Christian Attitudes on War and Military Service. And what he says, in no uncertain terms, is that he's read all of the relevant literature of the first 300 years. There are different periods of time where there are nuances, but there is literally not a single Christian author, as I mentioned, uh, there's not a single Christian author who deviates from the anti-violence stand of Jesus and the apostles. So check it out if you're interested. That, once again, is Caesar and the Lamb, Early Christian Attitudes on War and Military Service. It's from 2012, uh, but for whatever reason, Preston Sprinkle interviewed him yesterday on his podcast and kind of rehashed a lot of the same questions and subjects. So take a look at that if you're interested. Now, as far as Christians being in the military prior to the Constantinian shift, there are a couple of reasons why that would be the case. Reason number one, somebody who is a soldier converts to Christianity and can't just leave the military. Reason number two, somebody who is a Christian gets conscripted into the military and doesn't have a choice about it or has already agreed to join and then becomes a Christian just before getting in. Uh, There are all kinds of complicated reasons why Christians might be in the military. And there may have very well, as Preston Sprinkle points out in his book, there may very well have been some Christians who thought that killing was justified and and fine and, and didn't agree with the more dominant view on the subject held by all literary remains from the period. That's entirely possible as well, that there was a range of positions. Uh, it's certainly that case in most churches today, that you, you say, okay, well, this is an Anabaptist church, so therefore everyone inside of this church holds X, Y, and Z. But if you actually talk to the people, you'll find that you know a lot of them just hold X and Y, some of them hold Y and Z, some of them never even heard of X. It never, they weren't paying attention when it was preached on, or they missed that Sunday, or they've just have their own reasons for not holding to that belief. And and so it's always been. You are going to have some Christians that are going to take differing positions on this or that, and this could be a case of that as well. I don't think we can use that to justify later views of Christian participation in killing, uh, because there were some that were in the military for some reason or another. Now, we know for sure from the church orders. If you recall, Hippolytus' apostolic traditions, he is recording the standard procedure that the church at Rome was using in the third century, and he says very clearly that if somebody is going to wear the purple, that is, being a government administrator, or be in the military, they would be counseled to leave those positions in order to join the church, or else they would be rejected for baptism. Now look, I happen to agree with this for that time. When we, when we move to the question to today, though, uh, things are very different. You can serve the government, either of the United States or of a state or um, uh, some sort of local government, and not compromise your Christian beliefs, right? Uh, it depends on, it depends on what you're doing for the government, and it depends on where you draw the line, where you can say, you know what, I just can't follow through on this policy because of my faith, and therefore I resign, or therefore I conscientiously object on this or that. Uh, That's something that's available in many modern countries today. Also in the military, there are lots of non-combat positions available in the military, and there is all kinds of gray areas. This is not some simplistic issue. The command of Christ does not say you can't be in the military, does not say you cannot be in the government. The command of Christ says you are to love God, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, and then specifically on this issue, you are to love your enemy. If you can fulfill the obedience to Christ, serving in the military or serving in the government or serving in some corporation, then I don't see the problem. So just to clarify on that, sometimes I get myself into trouble making overly zealous statements about what Christians can and cannot do. Look, what we're bound to is the words of Christ. What we're bound to is Scripture. We're not bound to some sort of oral tradition laid on top of Scripture, some sort of Pharisaic oral code, and building all kinds of fence laws. Although denominations do that, I understand, and I understand the reasons for why they do it. 
as far as the whole subject of justly participating in wars and what happened with that, really, I, from what I can tell, and I haven't done enough thorough research on this, but from what I can tell, it's really it really comes down to Ambrose, that he was a Roman governor in Milan. He was a very, very powerful man. And there was a power struggle in the church between the homoousians and the subordinationists. And it was tearing the church apart. And he came in as a secular force to bring peace to the situation. And uh, somehow or other, they decided, well, this guy really should be our bishop. And he wasn't even a Christian. And so they fast-tracked him and got him baptized and ordained as a bishop. And he really brought the Roman sensibilities and practicality of governance into Christianity in a huge way. And Ambrose really was, in the, at least towards the end of the 4th century, such a huge influence on politics at the highest level. He withstood the emperor to his face uh, multiple times. He convinced uh, the emperor to do some things that I, I think are quite contrary to scripture. And he brought that sense of what's a just war into the church. And he was the mentor of Augustine. He was the one who discipled him and who trained him, not only in his allegorical interpretation strategy, but also his sense of what is the proper role of a bishop. And as you recall, Augustine then employed government violence in order to persecute other Christians in Africa, eventually, once he became bishop himself down in Hippo. So the story of how just war came in and Christians started to really join the military in mass has a lot to do with Ambrose and Augustine. Uh, and so if I were to point you in one direction, I'd say, read those two authors and see what you can find. It's not like you're going to find a chapter called Just War Theory and have it all <laughs> laid out for you. Uh, they didn't use that terminology, and, and so it makes it a little harder to figure out what's going on. But you definitely do have that. Although, I, as I recall, I think Augustine still didn't believe in self-defense. He thought self-defense was inappropriate for Christians. But war was justified in certain situations. So that's kind of a hybrid view that eventually will change to everyone thinking that self-defense is always justified for any reason. And uh, so it's a fascinating topic. I wish you the best in your research on that. Uh, would definitely recommend getting uh, the Joseph Lynch Church History textbook over Justo Gonzalez. Uh, I think Joseph Lynch is way more honest I don't really care for the first part of his textbook where he talks about Jesus and the apostles. I kind of skipped over that. But once we get into the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th, and so on, up to the, I think he goes up to the 5th and 6th centuries, maybe. It's phenomenal. It's so honest. It's so up-to-date with scholarship. It was what we were using at Boston University when I took classes there, and I have enjoyed using it ever since. On episode 494, Arius and Alexander of Alexandria Danny writes in, excellent, simply presented and summarized. I am very thankful, Sean, for your presentation of these enlightening matters. Your implied perspective that we seek a more restorationist point of view is so necessary. I think, however, and perhaps it is not a compromise to be creative, within a tolerant biblical worldview, there is room for righteous evangelistic creativity and empathy, becoming all things to all persons, so that by all possible means we might save some quoting 1 Corinthians 9 there. We don't need, he continues, we don't need to fight in holding reasonable opinions. That's one main takeaway from the study of church history. Thank you for your fresh contribution to the people of God. So what Danny's talking about here is my rant at the end of episode 494, where I talked about uh, the need for restorationism, the goal and aim of this podcast Restitutio, is to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. And so it's a twofold process. One is figuring out what in the world they did in the New Testament. What, what was the earliest Christians doing? How were they thinking about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about how to live? So that's step one. And then step two is, well, how do I apply that in the 21st century in my own particular context, in a world that has so many different things than so many different technologies and social systems and 
individualism and entertainment and everything else that has changed over the years, how do I apply and be faithful to the original practice of Christianity in the 21st century? And I think both of these are are very important to us. So that's, I think, where we can find some creativity, and I would agree with Danny on that. But I'm not looking to get creative with describing the doctrines that the apostles believed and preached. I think labels are fine, sure, but the label needs to define what they believed. I'm just real nervous about the creativity of the creative impulse that eventually led to the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. The development of the doctrine of the dual natures, as we'll see in future episodes, was incredibly long and slow and full of infighting and persecution and bloodshed. Uh, At one point, a bishop getting lynched by a mob at the order of another bishop. I mean, this kind of thing is just is a terrible black eye on the bride of Christ. I think a lot of it comes from this impulse to generate ever more complicated versions of how to understand Christ in light of the left turn we had in the early 4th century ed in, in saying that Christ was eternal and didn't have a beginning. I think all of it stems back to there. But we can wait for future episodes to talk about that. What Danny's talking about here, I think, uh, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, is in applying the uh, doctrines of the apostles, the practices of the apostles in our own situation today in creative and winsome ways. Last of all, on last episode, 495, which is Trinity Controversy in the 4th Century, Mark wrote in saying, Hey, Sean, thanks for this episode. Such an impressive amount of material you managed to cover. I have got a question for you, though. I fully agree with your statement. What we want to do is restore Christianity of Jesus' day. Now, you briefly mentioned the controversy regarding the date of Easter, and he goes on to talk about the differences between the Jewish calendar and the Gregorian calendar and asks the question, shouldn't we be keeping Easter according to the Jewish calendar? You can find his comments if you'd like to read it in full. I want to make a couple of remarks on this, Mark. Uh, One of them is that Scripture, and certainly Jesus, never commands us to celebrate Easter. It never does. It's a tradition that we inherited from post-biblical Christianity. And so I, I guess we could say that, strictly speaking, this is an optional practice. But it is very early. I don't remember exactly who was the first one to mention it, but it is something that was originally practiced on the 14th of Nisan, uh, and then uh, by some Christians, and then by others on the Sunday. uh, I don't remember if it's the Sunday before that or after that, and that's how Christians do it to this day. And that's why it moves around so much, because it is Easter is following the Jewish calendar, even to this day. But uh, I think this is something where we have freedom in Christ. As it says in Romans chapter 14, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That was Romans 14 verse 6. So I think this is an area where we have freedom in Christ. That's talking about any day, any religious holiday. Uh, not specifically Easter, just for the record. Uh, and some people want to celebrate it on, at a different time. I don't think it's a big deal. Feel free to do that. As far as what do the earliest Christians do, I think they did multiple things. And this is not something that's spelled out in, in Scripture, so I'm going to argue for freedom on it. Mark does ask me as a pastor, uh, how do we work it out? Uh, and we just go with the flow on this one. We don't see a reason to be a stick in the mud or to insist on celebrating Easter on like a Tuesday if it happens to fall on that date this particular year, however many days after Pesach on the Jewish calendar. Because look, in my context at least, people work on Tuesday morning. And so if we want to celebrate Easter on a Tuesday morning, it's going to be really, really difficult to to get people to go. If it's something commanded in Scripture— okay, then we just have to find jobs that have that flexibility or be self-employed or find some sort of a a schedule that fits with our religious convictions, sure. But this is not something commanded in the scriptures. And so I think people are free to figure it out however they like. And Mark also made the point, I say this because it was based first on a pagan calendar, uh, later on a newly invented one named after a pope, you know, so these are not biblical calendars. These are pagan, the Julian calendar, and 
uh, Catholic, the Gregorian calendar named after Pope Gregory. Well, look, this ties into a bigger just principle. Let's talk about underwear for a second. If you look in Scripture, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong about this because uh, it would take a lot of research to, to verify, but so far as I know, there's only one mention of underwear in the entire Bible, and that is in reference to the high priest's special garments. I think they were linen or silk. They were pretty nice underwear, whatever they were. If you ask me the question, well, Sean, why are you wearing underwear? You're not a high priest. In the Bible, only the high priest wears underwear. Who do you think you are wearing underwear? You're not being biblical. Okay, you, and, and, and someone could even say, well, you're wearing underwear like the pagans do. You're not wearing it like the it is in the Bible. Well, um, okay, two things on that. One, I don't believe that Christians are bound to keep the law of Moses. Some people disagree with me on that, but that's pretty clear from the book of Hebrews and Galatians and Romans. Citing a command for the, for the high priest to, to wear underwear, I don't feel the force of that as a New Covenant Christian. Second of all, Scripture does not prohibit the use of underwear to anyone that's not the high priest, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. So I, I think there's a lot of freedom then to decide whether or not we wear underwear. And I hope you, dear listener, I hope you wear underwear. I think they're a great invention. And so are airplanes, and so is electricity and drywall for the, your interior walls. Somebody could say, well, why, why are you using drywall like the pagans? You know, a- atheists invented that. I don't know if atheists invented it, but let's say an atheist invented the concept of drywall, and you're like, oh, you're, you're using drywall like the atheists. You should only use the old school lath with, like, the horse hair and the plaster, and uh, then you're a real authentic Christian. Sorry, but like I, I just don't think those arguments hold uh, because there's no prohibition against it. Restorationism, as I understand it, does not include imitating as far as possible the technologies and the political systems and the social norms of antiquity, whether we're talking about Old Testament or New Testament. I don't think that's what restorationism is. I think it's figuring out their beliefs and practices— And then asking the second question, how do I live this today authentically? They didn't have in vitro fertilization. We do. Is it appropriate? They didn't have the birth control pill. We do. Is it appropriate? So there are new questions that we have to ask, right? But as to wearing underwear or using electricity or using a book that's sewn together when all they had was scrolls at the time of the writing of the New Testament— you know, I don't think I'm being a pagan by using a, a book that's sewn together, or an ebook for that matter. Uh, so I think when it comes to technology, when it comes to uh, differences in society or workplace reforms, I, I think what we have to do is use the principles of Scripture to discern, is this godly, is this ungodly, or is it just neutral? Like, why are the toilets all white ceramic? Why aren't they a different color? I don't know. I have no idea. And maybe you have a pink toilet. Bless your heart if you do. But I think that's one of these things that's just totally neutral. Pick whatever color you want. You put a little carpet on the lid of your toilet. I don't know why you do that, but some people do that too. And, you know, there's just so many things in life that are neutral. And I think when it comes to the calendar, and back to Mark's original question, I got way off the the track on this one, huh? I think it is totally optional. If you want to live off the Jewish calendar, go live off the Jewish calendar. Once again, Romans says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one, And, and then other people that don't observe the day do it also to the honor of the Lord. Uh, but you're going to be, have a really hard time functioning in society if you're resting on a day that's a work day and you're working on a day that's a rest day and you can't ever get together with anybody or do any outreach or evangelism or inviting anybody to come because... You're just out of sync with society. And that's really, I think, the genius of Christianity in the successful missionary work of Christianity over the centuries is that Christianity works in any culture. It works in any society. It works in any language. It works in any location. You don't have to wait for the barley to be ripe in Israel in order to add a second month, an extra month that year onto to the calendar. That was great for Israel. That's how they lived. 
Uh, but I, I don't think that would apply if you live in Alaska or if you live in South America. So uh, I think Christianity is able to work in any kind of context, and that's part of the brilliance of it, that God wants people from every tribe, nation, and language to be in his kingdom. Well, that's enough rambling for me for today. If you have further thoughts, uh, why not come on to restitutio.org and find episode 495, Trinity Controversy in the 4th Century. Ironically, this comment has nothing to do with the Trinity Controversy in the 4th Century, but uh, who cares? Go ahead and reply to Mark and uh, have some dialogue there if you're interested. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. I'm uh, already beginning research on a major project that I can't really say much about, but it's uh, hopefully going to turn into a paper for the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference in October. And uh, this time it's not going to be on an an obscure Armenian group, okay? So that's all I'm going to tell you is that it's (laughs) it's hopefully going to be a little more universally interesting to people than talking about the Armenian Unitarians of the 18th century. But anyhow, thanks for those of you who have contributed. It really does help a lot, uh, especially when you're dealing with research uh, books, some of which are $100, $150. Uh, One that I got recently is $200. It's just ridiculous, the cost of some of these monographs, and uh, there's really no other way to access them, at least uh, unless you live next to a university library, which I don't. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.